The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, is it in your blood? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're going to talk about leukemia, a group of blood cancers that affect people of all ages. Sadly, some forms even affect children. Because of their significant effect, these diseases have been the focus of intense scientific research. Joining me today to discuss the complex science around leukemia, I have a great interdisciplinary team. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Ross Dickens. I'm a researcher at Monash University based at the Alfred Hospital, and I've been working on leukemias for about 10 years or so, mainly in mouse models. Hello, my name's Dr. Andrew Way. I'm a hematologist at the Alfred Hospital. My area of work and expertise is in acute myeloid leukemia, where I treat patients at the Alfred Hospital, and I also look after the molecular diagnosis of patients with this disease and also run some clinical research programs looking at new therapies for these conditions. G'day there, my name is Chris, and I am an interested community member. Recently, a leading UK researcher has proposed a theory for the cause of childhood leukemia. But before we discuss that, let's go to the basics of what blood is and where it's formed. You mentioned that leukemia is a form of blood cancer. Leukos is a Greek word for white, and hema is blood. So does this indicate that leukemia originates from white blood cells? That's correct. Yeah, so white blood cells are really one of the three main components of blood. So we've got obviously red blood cells or erythrocytes, white blood cells, leukocytes, and then platelets, which are in fact not really even cells. They're fragments of megakaryocytes. And they're involved in three fundamental processes, really. Obviously, the red blood cells with carrying oxygen, white blood cells for fighting infection, keeping us sterile, essentially, and the platelets for keeping the blood flowing and really moving the other components of the blood around the body effectively. So, yeah, our blood is red, really, because the red blood cells are predominant. If you look at a blood smear on a slide, then almost all of the cells you can see there are the red blood cells, which are kind of these disc-shaped cells. And then the platelets are like almost like specks of dust in the background. They're very tiny fragments, but they will aggregate to form blood clots. And then the white blood cells are actually reasonably rare in the blood compared to red blood cells anyway. So hence, the blood is red because it's mainly red blood cells. As Andrew can expand on in patients with heavy burden, raging leukemia, their blood can actually start turning milky in colour because there's so many white blood cells or white blood cell progenitors that are spilling into the blood, the blood loses its red colour, which but you've got to be pretty sick for that to happen, but it's, it's pretty extraordinary. 
if you think about in terms of location of the blood cells, the red blood cells and the platelets are really largely restricted to the vessels, the arteries and the veins and the capillary beds, obviously, whereas the white blood cells can move around using that highway system, but then they will often leave the vessels, so-called extravasation, and they can move into tissues and they can reside there and help fight infections. They can assist in wind healing. And so, yeah, the location of the cells is actually very important. And it's something that white blood cells have got a real, they're motile, unlike the other two types. Where do all these blood cells get made in the human body? We're talking about many different cell types. And from an anatomical perspective, there are specific locations, actually from fetal development through adulthood, where these cell types are made, predominantly in adulthood through the bone marrow, as you were just suggesting. Hematopoiesis, or heme, which we said already means blood, and poiesis means production, is just the production of blood. During fetal development, we actually don't have bones that are big enough to produce blood cells. So we have to do this outside of the bone marrow until the long bones are long enough to have a cavity in which bone marrow can be produced. And this occurs either in the spleen originally or eventually in the liver, which is one of the first abdominal structures to develop and in fact is one of the largest fetal structures. Interestingly, when you look at a newborn and they have a large belly, most of that is actually their liver. There is a point when bones are large enough that the transition of hematopoiesis moves from this fetal liver into the bone marrow. However, as we develop and we age, the amount of hematopoiesis that can occur in these cavities decreases. So some of this bone marrow becomes more fatty and less of these cell types that we're talking about, which will also contribute to our ability to fight infections as we age or manage trauma. So there's an absolute stack of production. There's billions of cells produced and cleared every day. And as you probably know, the main factory is the bone marrow. It's central, it's protected, and there's a lot of it. The red blood cells, white blood cells, and indeed platelets are all made in the bone marrow. The development process comes from hematopoietic stem cells, which really have the potential to form any of the blood lineages. And as they differentiate, there's a lot of cell division. And remarkably, neutrophils, which is the most common white blood cell type in the blood, there's 100 billion made every day in the bone marrow of an adult. So there's a massive amount of production, and then obviously we're not filling up with neutrophils, so 100 billion old neutrophils are cleared per day. So there's this incredibly efficient system of production and clearance, and that in the end explains to an extent why leukemia comes about, because the progenitors of white blood cells are intrinsically highly proliferative, and if there's a genetic mutation that locks the cell into that proliferative state and it can't differentiate properly, then a leukemia can come about. One of the properties of a hematopoietic stem cell is that it doesn't divide very often. They're kind of a backup mechanism for if all hell breaks loose and there's a massive requirement for blood cell production, like a big bleed or a big infection, then the hematopoietic stem cells will kick into gear and begin to make more progenitors. But generally speaking, day to day, the hematopoietic stem cells are not dividing very much, but they will, upon occasional division, give rise to progenitors, which then amplify massively. And then their progeny amplify massively. And obviously, this is an exponential expansion. These things go absolutely mad. And then generally, there's an inverse relationship between proliferation and differentiation. So as the progenitor cells differentiate towards the specialized white blood cell types, they will slowly exit the cell cycle program to the point where the neutrophils, of which 100 billion are made a day, as we mentioned, they don't proliferate at all. Once they leave the bone marrow, they're destined for distant organs, but they don't proliferate anymore. So the stem cells and progenitors are incredibly proliferative, but the mature cell types are largely quiescent. 
So proliferation just means cell division, whereas differentiation means specialization. So if you were thinking about a family, maybe the dividing and increasing number of the family would be proliferation. And then as the children grow up and specialize and get a workforce, that would be more differentiation. Good one. Can we find out a bit more about hematopoiesis? What exactly is hematopoiesis? Hematopoiesis is the production of blood cells in general. And so the white blood cells are really, as we've heard a couple of times, there's 100 billion made per day. So those progenitors, the hematopoietic stem cells don't divide very often, but the progenitors that they produce are extremely proliferative. And the leukemias, by and large, will arise from mutations that occur in the white blood cell progenitors. And there's two main classes of white blood cells, the myeloid and lymphoid. The myeloid cells, including cells like neutrophils, macrophages, and others, whereas lymphoid cells are B and T lymphocytes. Myeloid is innate immunity and lymphoid is adaptive immunity, respectively. Because the white blood cell progenitors proliferate so much, often they can accumulate these mutations that derange their normal proliferation control. If you have a myeloid lineage progenitor that sustains certain number of mutations, it can turn into a myeloid leukemia. That can be further subclassified into either chronic myeloid leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia, CML and AML respectively. And similarly in the lymphoid lineage, they can also transform in different ways. And these are different sets of mutations that give the different diseases into chronic lymphocytic leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. All four of these different kinds of leukemia have got different clinical presentations. They're diagnosed differently, and interestingly, they've actually got different sets of genetic mutations that cause them. So that makes the prognosis for all of these different leukemia patients dramatically different, and the treatments they're given are very, very different. Some of these cancers are very aggressive, others are more indolent, and Andrew can expand on that. We now know where blood cells come from. We also know the different cell types. What is it that causes the white blood cells to become cancerous? So as Ross mentioned before, every day our body has to make 100 billion new white blood cells, which is similar to the number of stars in our galaxy. And each of those cells has to reproduce its DNA in about 20 minutes. There was a beautiful analogy which I once heard from a great scientist from the Walton Eliza Hall Institute called Don Metcalf. He said that in 20 minutes, the cell has to reproduce its DNA and all the information in it which is analogous to copying the Encyclopedia Britannica letter for letter and word for word. And so the letters are the nucleotides, the words are the exons, and the chapters are like the genes. And so trying to do all that in 20 minutes, 100 billion times a day, there's lots of errors which can occur naturally. These errors are what we call mutations. And in fact, every time a cell divides, there's one error in every three cells. And so if you do the maths each day um, and every year of our lives, It's no wonder that blood cancers have a propensity to become more frequent as we get older. These mutations, uh, like Darwinian evolution, produces a scenario whereby these cells which acquire mutations which give them a growth advantage or a survival advantage, these cells become the fittest and the strongest and they will increase in number and eventually can fully transform to become what we call uh, leukemia, which is a blood cancer. The concept of Darwinian evolution is very important, and I think leukemia doesn't come about from a single mutation in a single gene that then causes the cell to proliferate uncontrollably. 
it's the acquisition of several mutations that will collaborate and slowly synergize in the end to create this cell that now no longer needs any external growth cues and it will just continue to grow. So one example is acute myeloid leukemia where in fact the average number of driver mutations is only about half a dozen. Three or four of those mutations may be present in someone's body in the bone marrow in a certain pool of bone marrow cells without any overt leukemia. But then once they get those fifth and sixth mutations, that can then tip the cell over the edge and it starts growing uncontrollably and then, in fact, can spill out of the bone marrow into the blood. And then you start seeing these progenitor cells that we mentioned before that would normally only be found in the bone marrow can be seen in the blood. I think there's a huge intrinsic proliferation program, but there's also this differentiation program, which the maturation of the cells will automatically kind of, as a consequence, shut down the proliferation. The problem is often in blood cancers when the transcription factors, which are master regulators of that whole blood lineage, when they have loss of function mutations, so they're only partially active, then cells now no longer exit their proliferation program and they get stuck in their proliferation program. So that's a very common genetic mutation type, and that opens up some therapeutic possibilities that we'll talk about later. But ultimately, it's kind of scary in some ways that actually you don't need that many mutations in normal white blood cell progenitors to transform those cells into leukemia cells, unlike some other cancer types, which often are driven by hundreds of different mutations. So essentially, under normal conditions, there are checkpoints or signposting about what's an appropriate time and framework in which to reproduce, proliferate, and differentiate. In the case of leukemia, the signs either aren't there or completely ignored because essentially the cell has mutated so that it no longer needs to pay attention to that sign. And if we think of it sort of a cell as a car and they're driving on the highway, there are clear signs that tell them when to stop, when to slow down, when to turn right, when to turn left. And in the case of leukemia, he's the guy driving, ignoring all the signs and causing massive crashes and terror everywhere it goes. That's a good analogy. I think you've touched on the fact that the proliferation and differentiation of a white blood cell progenitor in the bone marrow is in a lot of ways constrained by its physical environment. There's concentration gradients, there's spatial proximity of one cell with another. All of these regulatory mechanisms keep blood cell production very well defined. But then when you get a certain mutation in a cell where it now no longer cares whether it's got a growth factor that's stimulating its division, it will just keep dividing. And it can actually now start dividing in locations that are completely inappropriate. So using the car analogy again, it's the difference between transmission breakdown with a gene mutation versus a scratch on the side of the car. So some mutations may cause no impact with the ability of the car to drive, but some may totally change it and take it off-road into the dirt, into places it shouldn't be. To extend the uh, car analogy, perhaps uh, ridiculously, um, (laughs) a car analogy that's often used in cancer in general is that there's two classes of mutations in cancer. There's loss of function mutations in the tumor suppressor genes, which is kind of like cutting the brake cable so the cell can't stop. They're difficult ones to engage therapeutically because it's a little bit hard to reinstall a broken brake into a cell. Whereas the other type of mutation is a gain-of-function mutation in a proto-oncogene, which turns it into an oncogene, and as the name suggests, that is driving the cancer off, and it's like the accelerator of the car being stuck down. It's like you've got a brick on the accelerator holding it down. And there, therapeutically, that presents an option because you can kind of cut the accelerator cable at that point or find a way to get that brick off the accelerator and the car will stop driving. 
But really, again, to extend the analogy yet further, you often will need both types of mutation in an individual cell in order to get the car to move. So if the car's on stationary ground and you cut the brake cable, nothing happens. If you press the accelerator but the brake is on, nothing happens. You need both to occur simultaneously, which is why cancer is really a polygenic polymutation disease where a single mutation is usually not enough. There are clearly many different mechanisms that take place in regards to leukemia. What are the different types of leukemia that can come about if there are so many different factors in play? So basically, there's two main white blood cell lineages in a way. There's the lymphoid cells, which are made up of B and T lymphocytes, the so-called adaptive immune system. The other lineage is the myeloid lineage, which produces cells of the innate immune system. They're all white blood cells, but the innate immune system, the myeloid lineage, is involved in getting rid of non-specific pathogens, so very active at mucosal surfaces in the mouth, in the eyes, in the gut, keeping bacteria at bay, some viruses, fungus, everything that's in the environment that wants to live in our body because it's a great place to be. That is all surveilled by the innate immune system. In the patients with these leukemias, does that mean that their stem cells are normal? That if you were to go back to the stem cell origin, they would have no genetic mutations. That's an interesting point. I think I would argue that it's mainly the progenitor compartment that contains the mutations, but there are certain blood cancers where there are mutations in the hematopoietic stem cells. Again, it's this idea that they can accumulate. So you may have one or two mutations in the hematopoietic stem cells that doesn't really affect their function. But then in the progenitor compartment, you may have one or two more mutations. So then in some total, the more expansion is happening, then you've got these small clones that start growing that have got three mutations. And then one of those may sustain a further mutation, four, five, six, and eventually you get the leukemia. So when comparing and contrasting stem cells and progenitor cells, you can go sort of back to our analogy of a developing human. The stem cell would be the newborn the toddler would be the progenitor cell, and the adult would be the mature, fully differentiated white blood cell. Now that we know the four different types of potential leukemias, what are the clinical differences and presentations of these? As Ross mentioned, in broad terms, there are myeloid and lymphoid types of blood cancers. With respect to myeloid disorders, we can break them down into chronic myeloid diseases and acute myeloid diseases. The chronic myeloid diseases are a little bit complex but generally they can arise from any of the components of the bone marrow. So if you think about what were the cells that Ross mentioned before in the bone marrow, we've got red cells. You can have a chronic proliferation of red cells, and we call that polycythemia vera. With respect to white blood cells, you can have chronic proliferation of white blood cells, and we call this chronic myeloid leukemia. The platelets, the small fragments which are important to help us clot our blood when we have an injury, a proliferation of platelets is called essential thrombocythemia. And lastly, the bone marrow also has reticulant cells, which can also proliferate in a chronic form, and this is called myelofibrosis, which basically means fibrosis of the bone marrow. One of the most important chronic white blood disorders is called chronic myeloid leukemia, and it's important because prior to effective therapies, patients would develop very large spleens, very high white blood counts, would lose a lot of weight, and without treatment, these chronic myeloid leukemias would invariably transform into acute myeloid leukemias through acquisition of further mutations and making them a much more aggressive disease. 
About two decades ago, a drug was developed which was targeting the biology of a chronic myeloid leukemia, which is a mutation which fuses chromosome 9 onto chromosome 22, allowing the two genes to come together, BCR and ABLE, causing a fusion gene. And this fusion gene creates all the hallmarks of chronic myeloid leukemia. So this drug is called imatinib, and this was the first targeted silver bullet type therapy that was produced for cancer, and this completely transformed patients with this disease. Our original therapy was to use chemotherapy, and we would have to do a stem cell transplant to keep these patients alive. However, now we have many thousands of people around the world who are taking imatinib, otherwise called Gleevec, and this is a small molecule which turns off this fusion gene and stops all the leukemic properties associated with that abnormality. The chronic leukemias are often so-called smoldering or indolent leukemias that don't have a dramatic effect on the patient in the short term, and that's because generally with the chronic leukemias, the differentiation and the production of normal cells is still occurring reasonably normally. It's just that there's kind of more of everything. But you're still producing functional cells where the acute leukemias can often come on very quickly. And as Andrew mentioned, you can basically be in a life-threatening situation within days of diagnosis because a key characteristic of the acute leukemias is a differentiation block. Some of the mutations that the cell has sustained before it became a cancer is blocked. So now you've got all of these progenitor cells that are filling up the bone marrow, but those progenitor cells are not functional. They don't fight infection. They don't form platelets. They don't form red blood cells. They are in an inactive, immature form, but they're incredibly proliferative. So they efface the whole bone marrow and spill out into the blood. And basically there's infections, there's tiredness because there's not enough red blood cells, etc. In some ways, it's acute versus chronic based on the impact that it has on the patient. It also has, a, I guess, a pretty dramatic effect on how quickly these patients need to be treated, obviously, and how dramatic that treatment response needs to be because if you've got a patient with acute leukemia, you need to get them under control very, very quickly because those cells can just take over and the patient can succumb very quickly without treatment. So this is sort of a permanent long-term treatment? Yes, so it's an interesting uh, phenomenon because we originally thought that by adding this tablet, we would just put these chronic myeloid leukemia cells into a form of suspended animation. We didn't think we would actually get rid of the disease, but basically just stop the progenitor cells from expanding into the millions and billions of cells which creates the problem. So patients have generally had to take these tablets long term. However, in recent times, we've identified that about one-third of patients actually get rid of all evidence of the mutation when we measure it by very sensitive techniques. And there's even been studies where some patients have had their drug ceased after being in molecular remission for a number of years. And so far, we find that about one-third of patients so far have not regenerated the disease. And so maybe in some patients, the drug itself can lead to elimination or at least clinical remission for many years without having to take on going therapy. Does this suggest that the drug is actually working potentially at the stem cell level or is that not quite known? It's a really tough one. It's possible that it's working at the stem cell level, but in theory, we know the drug works because it's very powerful at normalizing patients who have got CML in the short term. But yet patients who can be on imatinib for 10 or 15 years, on some occasions when you withdraw the drug, the disease comes straight back. So clearly there are progenitor or hematopoietic stem cells that have got the BCRA mutation that have persisted in those patients. 
But why is the mutation maintained when clearly in that case, the mutation is not giving those cells a selective advantage? So it's a little bit of a mystery at the moment. And I think it's probably got to do with the turnover of the hematopoietic system in general and stem cell division as we age. And as Andrew said, it's only about a third of patients from whom imatinib can be withdrawn and they are effectively cured, whereas the others will again relapse. And I think that depends also, doesn't it, Andrew, on how long they've been on the drug to begin with. Yeah, and and one other thing we've noticed clinically, which fortunately doesn't happen that often, but it can happen, is that sometimes we have patients who are on therapy, and then uh, after a period of time, we notice that the therapy doesn't work as well, and the level of mutation starts rising. Imatinib is a very targeted therapy towards BCR-ABLE. It doesn't really hit any other protein in the body. So it turns out that simply a mutation in the BCR-ABLE fusion gene that changes the shape of the BCR-ABLE protein now means that imatinib can no longer bind that protein and inhibit it. That single genetic event, which will often be a single base pair mutation resulting in a single amino acid substitution, will now mean that BCR-ABLE is no longer inhibited by this drug and unfettered BCR-ABLE drives CML, so that's why the disease starts coming back. I think that imatinib resistance illustrates a really interesting concept in cancer therapy where we've talked about the fact that cells will often have to accumulate four, five, six mutations before they become truly cancerous. Now, if you design a therapy that only targets one out of those multiple mutations, then you might eliminate all the cells that harbor mutation A, but there may be a lot of cells that harbor mutations B, C, D, and E that persist. And then all those cells that have got to do is to, again, sustain a mutation in gene A, and you've got a cancer again. So targeted therapies are very, very effective in genetically simple cancers like CML, which is driven surprisingly solely by BCR-ABLE. It's not even two genetic mutations that cause CML, it's one. Targeted therapies are incredibly powerful at getting rid of that disease. As we've heard from Andrew, they can put patients into remission for 10 or 15 years. But it's also relatively easy for a cell to find a way around a targeted therapy simply by sustaining a mutation in BCR-ABLE such that the drug no longer binds the protein. With respect to CML, well, we have different drugs which can work slightly differently by targeting the pocket where imatinib binds slightly differently. If it's different enough and able to slot in and bind around these mutations, then it can re-establish the effectiveness of the drug by again switching off these mutant proteins. We now have a pretty good grasp of CML. Can you give us a bit more information about the more acute types of leukemias? I often use the analogy that we have a bone marrow which normally resembles a nice green lawn of grass and these leukemic cells are like weeds which grow and take over the lawn and you can't grow normal grass anymore. The definition of acute myeloid leukemia is the presence of 20% blasts in the bone marrow which is the same as having say 20% of your lawn covered in weeds and it's often associated with reduced blood production And so we get the manifestations of anemia, which means low red cells, neutropenia, which means low neutrophils, which makes patients susceptible to infection, and low platelets, which can predispose patients to increasing bruising and bleeding. Continuing with that story of being able to be quite unwell within a very short period of time with the acute types of leukemia, what are the tests that you run? How do you actually treat something like that, given you've got such a short space of time? So when a patient is suspected to have acute leukemia, the first thing we need to do is establish whether they have acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia because the treatments are quite different. We do a bone marrow biopsy 
which is usually a needle put in behind the hip bone. It's a very short procedure, takes about 10 minutes and is done under a local anaesthetic. We do a bone marrow aspirate, which means we use a syringe to suck out some of the bone marrow. With that bone marrow, we can then do several tests on it, which are critical for the diagnosis and also the prognosis. So the first thing we do is we stain the cells on a slide and we have a look at them. If there's an increase in these immature cells, which we call blasts, then if they're more than 20% of the cells in the bone marrow, then this is the definition of acute leukemia. The second thing we do is a test called phenotyping, which is a flow cytometry assay whereby antibodies are used to stain multiple antigens on the blast cells to tell us whether they have characteristics of myeloid lineage cells or lymphoid lineage cells. So the myeloid leukemias are characterized by the prevalence of myeloid antigens, myeloperoxidase being the most common one, and the lymphoid leukemias are categorized by having lymphoid markers present on them. The third test we do is called cytogenetics, and that's to allow us to identify the types of chromosome abnormalities, which is a crude marker of some of the genomic changes which can occur in leukemia. And so if we see lots of cells with the same abnormality, then we know it's probably an expansion of an abnormal cell forming the leukemic clone. Ross, do you want to tell us about some of the different mutations which are commonly found in acute myeloid leukemia? You've talked about some of the differences between acute myeloid and acute lymphoid leukemias, but one of the common factors is these loss of function mutations in the transcription factors that will drive the differentiation of that lineage. In the case of lymphoid leukemias, examples are Pax5 or Icarus, which are transcription factors that control the expression of hundreds, if not thousands, of other genes that are involved in the identity of that lineage. So loss of function mutations in those transcription factors tend to lock the progenitor cell into its self-renewing failure to differentiate mode. The accelerator is stuck down, the brake cable is cut, and the progenitor just continues to proliferate. In acute myeloid leukemia, similarly, loss of function mutations in transcription factors or other genetic events, various translocations that impede the transcriptional control of the myeloid lineage are very common. And indeed, we basically know the genetics of all leukemias now. We know what genetic changes are causing them. There's been a huge revolution in our understanding of the genetics of cancer in general, but in fact, the first ever cancer genome that was sequenced was an acute myeloid leukemia genome. And in fact, blood cancers have kind of led the way a little bit in in the genomic mutations in cancer because they're easy to sample. You can just take a blood sample and you can compare normal cells to cancer cells quite easily. So we know the genetic changes that cause cancer. Unfortunately, they can occur in frustratingly complex combinations. So it's rare that any two leukemias have exactly the same constellation of genetic changes and hence often a leukemia that looks very similar to another will respond very differently to therapy because the genetic mutations underlying are very different. Given what you've said there and given what you've said about there being multiple factors to the cancers, it seems like there being a silver bullet to cure all leukemias will definitely never be established. Is that true? That's partly true, although in the case of, for example, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common cancer in children, the first thing that's given to the kids who are often very, very sick when they present, they may be lethargic and get some extra bruising or something, which ultimately can be caused by a raging leukemia. Now, they can be very, very sick upon presentation. The number one emphasis there is to get rid of the leukemia burden very, very quickly, and it turns out that high-dose steroids, glucocorticoids, dexamethasone or other derivatives 
prednisolone can very, very quickly induce the cancer cells to die or 99% of the cancer cells will be dead within a couple of weeks. So the patient, in fact, can go back and establish normal hematopoiesis and become at least generally healthy before consolidation therapy is given, which often will take two to three years and hopefully will lead to cure and very often does in childhood leukemia, which is great. I guess the point there is that Almost all lymphoblastic leukemias are very sensitive upfront to high dose steroids, but it's more the long term outcome that can be quite different based on what genetic changes are in each individual leukemia. Ross, when we see a new patient with acute leukemia and if we diagnose acute myeloid leukemia, one of the most important subtypes of acute myeloid leukemia is a condition called acute promyelocytic leukemia. With this condition, patients can often present with extensive bruising and bleeding because the patients not only have low platelet counts, but the promyelocytic cells which are expanded can release granules and this can cause a loss of normal coagulation proteins and propensity to bleeding. So from a clinical point of view, this is one of the most feared and life-threatening conditions to diagnose. Ross, do you want to tell us a little bit about the genetic basis of acute promyelocytic leukemia? Yes, it's an interesting one because it's very different to the other acute leukemias. You've mentioned some of the differences there, but genetically it's driven by a little bit like chronic myeloid leukemia we discussed before, which is driven by the BCR able fusion protein. Acute promyelocytic leukemia, which is a subtype of acute myeloid leukemia, it's all very complicated, lots of three-letter acronyms, is driven by the fusion protein PML-RARA or PML-retinoic acid receptor alpha. So PML-RARA is the oncogene that drives the disease and it turns out that retinoic acid, which is a vitamin A derivative, will very effectively inhibit the function of that oncogene and cause its degradation and switch it off. So this is a remarkable story where APL patients and it's unique to APL, other AML subtypes don't respond in this way. Treatment with retinoic acid, in fact, triggers the differentiation of these transformed progenitor cells and is very effective at clearing the disease away. However, other acute myeloid leukemia subtypes don't respond that way at all with retinoic acid. Hence, the molecular diagnosis and the substratification even within AML, is very, very important because there's a whole bunch of different types of AML and they all have different treatments and prognoses. Yeah, so when we get a patient in, if we suspect promyelocytic leukemia because what we see on the blood film is a proliferation of promyelocytes rather than blasts and abnormal promyelocytes at that, we often start the patient on the drug which Ross mentioned called ATRA or all-trans retinoic acid and we start the patient on that whilst we're awaiting the chromosome analysis to tell us for sure or not whether it's a translocation 1517 or a PML-RAR-alpha fusion abnormality. And the drug ATRA is a drug which has completely transformed the way we treat leukemia. And it's the only drug we have at the moment which can unlock this differentiation block and allow the promyelocytes to mature into normal neutrophils. And neutrophils have a normal lifespan of only a few hours. And so once the promyelocyte becomes a neutrophil, it basically disintegrates without us having to do anything more. The most amazing thing is that the first patient that ever received ATRA was this seven-year-old girl in Shanghai, and she had failed normal chemotherapy, and some Chinese researchers had developed this new drug, and they went along to this hospital in Shanghai and offered this little girl the treatment, and she actually went into remission, and there was a nice editorial in a blood cancer journal only a few years ago, and this young girl is now still alive, and so I think this is one of the greatest triumphs of therapeutic targeting in blood cancer. I think what's also interesting about this conversation is how critical the link between the genetic understanding of these cell types 
and their variations and mutations and the clinical outcomes that are tied to them. Do you think that the same sort of view of cancer can and should be applied to other cancer types? Absolutely. And in fact, it is, for example, genes like P53, which are involved in the DNA damage response and so many chemotherapy drugs, traditional chemotherapy drugs act by causing DNA damage and causing the cell to basically commit suicide because it's so damaged. P53 will normally trigger that suicide response. So P53 mutations render the cell unable to commit suicide. Therefore, it can continue to accumulate mutations and become more and more aggressive. Now, that is seen in leukemia. It's seen in acute myeloid leukemia. They're the worst prognosis subtype. Patients who have got P53 mutant acute myeloid leukemia almost invariably succumb to the disease within two to three years, which is really terrible. And we need to find ways to treat these patients because at the moment there's very few options. And that general principle holds true for solid cancers as well, where across the board P53 mutations are associated with poor prognosis. And this is a type of mutation that you'd consider sort of cutting the... Cutting the brake cable. Cutting the brake cable. Absolutely right. And in that case, the difficulty there with the P53 mutations are that all normal cells have P53. So how do you sort of target Mm. a problem? Precisely. We've talked today about a couple of the targeted therapy approaches with imatinib targeting bcr in CML and retinoic acid targeting PML-RARA in APL. Now, they're very exquisitely specific therapies. They work beautifully, but only for subtypes of leukemia. And generally, our main option for all of the other subtypes of leukemia remains, by and large, DNA-damaging genotoxic chemotherapy, which, as you mentioned, Michelle, has got terrible side effects. All of the side effects that we associate with chemo generally caused by dysfunction of cells that are highly proliferative. The gut, the hair obviously falls out, nausea, sickness. Normal blood cell production is very much a problem. So many bodily functions are damaged terribly by chemo, so we need to find more specific therapies for all types of cancers. And really, we feel that the best way to do that is to understand how the genetic mutations that are seen in the cancers, what special properties that gives the cancer cell that is not there in the normal cell. And this goes back to what you asked at the beginning. These aren't cells that are coming from nowhere and magically appearing. These are our own cells that have mutations that make them different but still close to what our normal cells are. That's right. So until we have these new targeted therapies, unfortunately for the majority of our patients, we still have to use chemotherapy. And as Ross mentioned, these are cytotoxic drugs, which were actually discovered over 50 years ago. The two drugs that we use for treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia are called dornorubicin and cytarabine. And these drugs were actually put into play in combination in 1973. And we're still using these two same drugs in 2018. Dornorubicin is a red-coloured drug, and it was first extracted from soil species called Streptomyces. And there's a really interesting story where this drug was actually discovered simultaneously by French and Italian researchers. The French called it rubidomycin because it's red, and the Italians called it Dornomycinia, which was based on a tribe which was in the southern part of Italy. They went to the same conference and actually presented their data and they both realized they were talking about the same thing. So they came up with a a nice little agreement where they would fuse the name and called it Dorna Rubison. Ah, like many famous couples. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) With Cytarabine, this was actually discovered off the coastal waters in Florida. There was a researcher called Bob Feeney who found this beautiful blue sponge, which was called Cryptotethia Crypta, which basically means unknown, unknown. They were actually looking for antibiotics. 
they boiled the sponge and they put the extract on cells and actually killed the cells. And so that's how they worked out that this was cytotoxic. And so these were the two building blocks of AML therapy, which we still use today. And as Ross mentioned, they're very toxic, but hopefully at some point in the future, the molecular biology will inform our understanding of these diseases better and we can come up with some more less toxic and more targeted therapies. Is it possible that someone who's had chemotherapy for some other cancer develop something like leukemia? Yeah, some acute myeloid leukemias have been put down to prior exposure of DNA-damaging chemo. Unfortunately, cancer therapy increases your risk of developing other cancers in the future because it creates mutations. You mentioned P53 before, and we know that some patients that get leukemia and had chemotherapy previously for another malignancy, they often are found to have P53 mutations. Can you tell us why having prior chemotherapy or radiotherapy, why P53 mutations seem to be so important in characterizing patients with therapy-related leukemia? It's thought that the reason why damaging the DNA causes death of proliferating cells more than non-proliferating cells is because the cells don't necessarily have time to repair the DNA damage before they enter the next cell cycle. So you get this kind of accumulation of DNA damage and in fact often the cell won't even die until it tries to divide but there's enough DNA damage there that it can't segregate the chromosomes. But I mentioned before that particularly for P53 mutant cancers that we need other options and Andrew was working on a drug called Venetoclax it was developed in collaboration with a number of groups here in Melbourne, and it can trigger the suicide of cancer cells, or indeed any cell, not by creating DNA damage, but by directly engaging the suicide machinery of the cell. So you're basically stopping the checkpoint and just inducing suicide regardless of what the checkpoint says. That's right, and it's particularly important for older people with acute leukemia because, as I mentioned, the average age of onset is almost 70 years. And so that means half of our patient population are very old and in many cases quite frail. And giving these people intensive chemotherapy is obviously very toxic. The other big problem, as we discussed earlier, the accumulation of mutations is increased in older people. And so older patients with AML generally have more complex types of leukemias with multiple chromosome abnormalities multiple gene mutation abnormalities, multiple epigenetic abnormalities. And so you can imagine in this situation where there are so many things disrupted with the physiology of the particular leukemic cell that very difficult for a silver bullet targeting one aspect to overcome all of these multiple problems. Another wave of therapies for cancer that's coming through is the immunotherapies. Mm. And that now joins surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and kind of targeted precision therapies, a couple of which we've spoken about today, as one of the pillars of cancer therapy. And that's proving to be very, very successful and indeed giving cures really in probably 20% of certain solid cancers that have previously been very difficult to treat. Whether that's going to work out in leukemias, it's still fairly early. Some types of blood cancers are quite responsive to immunotherapy. But again, even within defined subtypes of leukemia, some patients will respond and others won't. So there's a lot of work to be done with immunotherapy in cancer across the board to work out how to get non-responders to respond. What exactly is immunotherapy? Immunotherapy is trying to make the patient's own immune system work more effectively against the leukemia, which has evolved ways to almost become invisible to our own immune system. And 
The most common ways that leukemic cells evade the immune system are through down-regulating things which are normally recognized by our immune cells or by upregulating things which can block the activity of our immune cells. Immunotherapy in acute leukemia has had its most effective path in treating a condition called B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. B-cells have CD19 antigen on them, and one of the key markers of T-cells is CD3. And so what one new form of immunotherapy does is it basically bridges the T-cell to the B-cell by creating an antibody, which is what we call bispecific. It is specific to CD19 and also specific to CD3. And it basically glues the T-cell onto the B-cell And then now the T-cell has no choice but to recognize that, hey, there's a leukemic cell there and I'm going to kill it in the normal way that I do by basically punching holes in the surface of the cell and basically using its own enzymes to destroy it. And so this drug called blinatumumab is now an approved therapy in Australia for patients with relapsed and refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia and is really our first non-chemotherapy-based approach using the powers of immunotherapy to try and eradicate leukemic cells. It is really interesting to think of using immunotherapy, though, to treat leukemias because the cells themselves are part of the immune system. So I can imagine that that would be a really complex scenario. Yes. I think you're right. All of the different components of the blood in some ways have to coexist. And I think, you know, the common principle behind immunotherapy really is getting T cells to recognize okay. cancer cells. And if the cancer cell is a progenitor of a B cell or a T cell or a myeloid cell, these things are all living in harmony a right. lot of the time. So I think it's a tougher ask than in solid cancer immunotherapy. Yeah. And I think maybe that's a little bit why it's lagging behind, but also. I think just not enough trials and experiments have been done yet to work it out. Immunotherapy is a total revolution, and there's a chance that the majority of cancers will be treated with immunotherapy in the future, including blood cancers. You mentioned that we're using a drug that's almost 50 years old now. We have this concept that the body is completely mapped out. We know exactly how everything works. But through some of these podcasts, it seems that that's not quite the case, that there's still a lot to be learnt about how the human body functions. What do you foresee are the challenges to developing other drugs or less invasive drugs, particularly with dealing with things like leukaemia? I think in the case of acute myeloid leukaemia, which we've discussed a little bit today and is Andrew and my specialty, we've touched on immunotherapy, so engaging the immune system to recognize the cells, and that's a natural process. And if we can engage that better therapeutically, that would be fantastic. And another concept we spoke about right at the beginning was the natural clearance mechanisms that the body has for 100 billion neutrophils a day. Now, if we can somehow differentiate or trigger the differentiation of an acute myeloid leukemia cell that is stuck in its progenitor state, if we can trigger its maturation, then it will be recognized by these clearance mechanisms and just removed. So therapeutically, both of those concepts are really engaging processes that are naturally occurring in the body in a way where they're specifically engaged to target the tumor cell. And maybe we don't have to be quite so brilliant and quite so complicated. So what you're saying is we we should find a simpler means, not over-engineer the solution. That's right. I think sometimes as things get more and more complex, you know, there's more ways that it can fail as well. And I think Mm. turning a leukemia cell into a normal cell and having it cleared by the body, either as a foreign cell that's got mutations in it, so it's cleared by the immune system, or as an old neutrophil that needs to be turned over along with its 100 billion mates every day, that makes sense, right? It's really simple, but it's just a matter of unmasking 
those properties of the tumour cell. And um, I think that's a big challenge, but also kind of a big hope. Having treated many people with acute leukaemia over the years, I have an enormous respect for the amazing variety and mechanisms by which the leukaemias have evolved, ways of you know developing and evading our therapies. And the way I think about it is that uh, leukaemias have developed and evolved over billions of years, and we are literally infants. We've basically developed therapies which we've only been developing and using in the last 50 years. So really, we're facing an enemy which has far more experience and knowledge than we will ever have uh, in our lifetimes. Yet, despite that, we are making progress. We've now developed mechanisms or methods where we can now sequence the entire exome of a patient, basically every single gene and nucleotide, within a few hours. And that really gives us incredible knowledge as to what is actually abnormal. But the big challenge is can we find therapies which can circumvent all of these abnormalities which Ross has uh, explained Ultimately, it will require a combination of different therapies. And the first thing we need to do is get patients into remission quickly. And I guess our our first hope is that we can replace chemotherapy with non-chemotherapy drugs to get patients into remission. And then the second goal is can we eradicate those residual progenitors and stem cells which allow the leukemia to grow back. And maybe that may be the, the best positioning for immunotherapy drugs which can you know, hopefully remove these leukemic cells regardless of the genetic uh, complexity. And so hopefully we'll, we'll see more therapies along those lines in the future. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. So I want to thank our guests for joining us today to discuss this very complex topic. And as always, remember, relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.